This week on Cross and Crown Radio, Russia has invaded Ukraine and Americans are debating what to do about it. Is there something that the mainstream media might be missing? Also, our three headlines include President Biden has made his selection of our next Supreme Court Justice, Katanji Brown Jackson. Who is she? And how do we expect her to do as she replaces Justice Stephen Breyer? Plus, the Legacy Standard Bible, while not really a news headline per se, is my new favorite thing, and I'll explain why. And I'm saddened to report that Dr. Gary North has gone to be with the Lord. I'll share some thoughts about Dr. North and his ginormous contributions to biblical scholarship. And finally, for our segment, Theonomy or Autonomy, with Russia's ongoing war with Ukraine, we're going to take a look at biblical principles regarding war and whether or not the Bible has much to say about the topic. As always, I'm your host, Jason Garwood. Thank you for watching and listening to Crossing Ground Radio. Like you, I've been watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine unfold in Eastern Europe, and perhaps also like you, I'm trying to wade through the malaise that is the mainstream media. After two years of COVID nonsense, it has become rather exhausting. I'm finding it somewhat difficult these days to separate fact from fiction, mostly because everyone seems to be using propaganda, which only adds to the confusion. For instance, did the soldiers on Snake Island actually die after they told off the Russian warship? President Zelensky said that the 13 soldiers had died heroically. However, CNN and other outlets are reporting that the Ukrainian Navy says they are alive and well. So, which is it? As of this recording, it looks like they were taken captive. And what about the ghost of Kiev? Did he really shoot down six Russian planes? Some doubt that he exists and that it's an urban legend. Former President Petro Proshenko tweeted a picture of this alleged ghost. Given Russia's lackluster performance thus far, clearly Ukraine is much more formidable than most realized. So there probably is a man in the cockpit outmaneuvering the invaders. Either way, we can all agree that war isn't limited to tanks and missiles. In fact, the war of propaganda and narrative control is one that is always going on. And we've had a front row seat to that for two solid years. As a side note, did everyone notice that Congress rescinded its mask requirement just in time for the State of the Union address? It sure was nice for the virus to go away just in the nick of time. We also witnessed this propaganda war not too long ago after a president of the United States was ousted from the Twitterverse. Having spent hours watching conservative news outlets like Fox News and The Daily Wire and reading various reports from CNN, The Washington Post, and others, and rummaging through firsthand reports as best as I know how, I've concluded that, in large part, we're not really being told the whole story. Yes, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Invasion is the best word for it. Yes, Ukraine is fighting back rather valiantly. But that's the extent of it. If you go to first-hand stories on the ground in Ukraine, you'll see even more. Now, to be fair, the 24-hours news cycle is pertinacious about its biases. We all know the corruption of CNN and 
We know that Fox News has had its share of scandals. But we also know that both sides are trying to toe a certain line. I, for one, am not so gullible as to believe that one can remain neutral regarding anything, especially reporting. Sure, you might interview one of your correspondents who may be in Kyiv or Kharkiv, and I'm grateful for those men and women who are there to report, but the problem with the 24-hour news cycle is the fact that it is designed to say the same thing all day long. Sure, reports come and go, but as I witnessed last week, Fox News will bring on a U.S. representative or even a former president like Trump, and I can always predict what's going to be said next. Biden isn't doing enough, or if I were president, Trump said this, this wouldn't have happened. You get former generals involved and they pounce on Putin. He's an evil man, and so on. That's the constant narrative. The 24-hour news cycle is designed to raise your ire. It's designed to be abrasive and unyielding. But what it lacks is nuance. However, it can't possibly be nuanced because there's not enough time. Whatever will we do? Explore the depths and history of, and dynamics of geopolitics in Eastern Europe? Who has time for that? All we hear is, Putin is a barbarous tyrant. He's a dra draconian leftover of the Soviet era. Now, far be it for me to defend Putin. I have my fair share of concerns. I do think him to be an evil man, possibly unstable. The same can be said for most of our politicians. Uh, I believe Putin does have some sort of communist impulse that at the moment, I guess you could say, is being presented in the form of nationalism and ethnic purity. He has actively suppressed evangelicalism in Russia, and he is no friend to Christianity. But is there more to the story? I believe so. I've spent quite a bit of time in preparation for this episode digging through and scouring the internet. I knew, despite what is presented on your news channels, that there was a history here and that this war didn't just come out of nowhere. Notwithstanding Cardi B's masterful borderline Churchillian wisdom, lacking in historical analysis but not pomp and circumstance, when she said to the world leaders, quote, stop tripping about power, end quote. Actually, I do agree with her. Far too many people do like their power trips. The history isn't as complex as we might think, but I'll go ahead and lay it out for you as best as I can. Pat Buchanan, former advisor to Richard Nixon, asked a really good question on his blog. He asked, did we provoke Putin's war in Ukraine? Again, if you only watch the news, you might assume that Putin wants to be Hitler and no one likes Hitler. Buchanan argues that Putin isn't Stalin and he isn't an irrational megalomaniac. He also argues correctly that Putin does not want a war with the United States. In my view, that would be the end of Russia. Buchanan writes, quote, Putin is a Russian nationalist, patriot, traditionalist, and a cold and ruthless realist, looking out to preserve Russia as the great and respected power it once was, and he believes it can be again, end quote. Fair enough. On one level, Buchanan hits the proverbial nail on the head. Putin was and is concerned about NATO. I think we all understand this much. Putin demanded that the U.S. see to it that Ukraine does not join NATO, but the U.S. didn't really take it that seriously. We said, well, if a country wants in, they're in, which is the basic policy of NATO anyway. According to The Hill, President Zelensky signed the EU membership application last week after five days of Russian aggression. Let's take a look at that video. 
It looks as though Ukraine will be fast-tracked into the EU and NATO. The heavy sanctions against Russia from the West are just now settling in, and it remains to be seen what will happen, at least as of the recording of this podcast. Will the cost become too great for Putin's economy? We'll see. Back to Buchanan. The history of Russian relations to Europe and the West is central to understanding the current conflict. For example, Buchanan cites the Russo-Georgian War in August of 2008, which many have pointed out was again an abysmal failure on Russia's part because their military prowess is still, to this day, sorely lacking. After the breakup of the Soviet Union, Georgia declared their sovereignty and independence in early 1991. Fast forward to 2008, and we find the Bucharest Declaration being signed, which put Ukraine and Georgia on a path to membership in NATO. Buchanan points out that Article 5 of the treaty declares that an attack on any one of the members of NATO is an attack on all. So Putin intervened and the issue was settled. Georgia and Ukraine were not going to be members, at least not on his watch. As Putin has been warning for what seems like decades, an encroachment of NATO on Russia's borders would be viewed as an attack on Russia. Imagine China, for example, allying themselves with Mexico only for China to set up military bases on the Texan border. Like it or not, that's where Putin is coming from. Now, we need to back up a little more. This is from uh, Buchanan's blog post. In 1999, when Putin took office, he became president while the U.S., quote, conducted a 78-day bombing campaign on Serbia, the Balkan nation that had historically been the protectorate of Mother Russia, end quote. Some of you may remember it as the Kosovo War, when NATO stepped in to deal with the Yugoslavian forces who would end up withdrawing from Kosovo. That same year, the Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland became members of NATO after leaving the Warsaw Pact, which was absolutely viewed from Moscow's perspective as a buffer between the East and the West. Fast forward to 2004, Slovenia, Slovakia, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Romania, and Bulgaria become members as well. Fast forward even more. Buchanan notes, quote, In 2014, a democratically elected pro-Russian president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, was overthrown in Kiev and replaced by a pro-Western regime. Rather than lose Sevastopol, Russia's historic naval base in Crimea, Putin seized the peninsula and declared it Russian territory. Teddy Roosevelt stole Panama with such, with similar remorse, end quote. This history is what has brought us to the current conflict. Ukraine, for the moment, is a neutral zone. They are not yet a part of NATO, nor are they involved, like Belarus, in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, CSTO, which includes Russia and Armenia and others. If Ukraine seizes neutrality and becomes a part of NATO, Putin has already seen this as a declaration of war, as it does, of course, in Moscow's view, pose a threat to their national security, contrary to what Ben Shapiro argues. Why? Well, because Ukraine will have U.S. backing and Putin is rightfully nervous about nuclear power getting that close. They've been concerned about this since Bill Clinton's time in office. Putin is also concerned about losing certain geographical locations, which help buffer the threat from the West. He also does not like the decadence of the West. In fact, 
Putin has repeatedly criticized the egalitarian homo lust that runs up against his traditional values. He's sick of Western progressivism, and I have to say, I agree with the man, at least in part. We agree on that issue for very different reasons, but alas, we agree. And lest I be accused of being a Putin sympathizer, I do think he is a liar, and Ukraine is definitely not a Nazi state. The man is evil, like our current president, and the inevitable conflict won't go well for him. Now, Peter Hitchens, writing for the Daily Mail in the UK, has thrown some of his thinking into the ring for consideration. He believes that the West acts tough with Russia because, quote, we're just too feeble to stand up to our real enemy, China, end quote. Calling it, quote, the most avoidable, needless conflict in modern history, and I agree with him, Hitchens sees the West getting soft on China. By not acknowledging Hong Kong and Taiwan's independence, it seems as though the West is scared of China. Perhaps Putin is more worthy of more worthy punching bag. Hitchens goes on to talk about the ridiculous foreign policy of America and NATO, citing the bombing of Belgrade in 1999, which had major civilian casualties, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the NATO bombing of Libya as well. Wouldn't Putin and the Chinese see the West as being rather volatile and unstable? Hitchin, Hitchens concludes, quote, I write this as a British patriot. How was it in our interest to provoke a war we cannot win and cannot even fight against a country which is not, in fact, our enemy? End quote. I think he makes some good points. There's also the issue of the Donbass region with two separatist groups, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. Both groups are recognized by Russia as being separate from Ukraine. In the western part of Ukraine, we have Transistria. Say that sen sentence several times fast. Transistria, that's a breakaway state recognized as being a part of Moldova. We also have the issue of various nationalist groups with conflicting ambitions. What does one do when some of your country doesn't want to be part of your country? It gets really complicated really quick when the West is consistently involving itself in your affairs. Speaking of which, the New York Post reported back in January of this year that the U.S. sent 300 Javelin missiles to Ukraine. 80 tons of weapons were sent, which, curiously enough, was the third installment of what amounted to $200 million in aid, which was authorized by President Biden. The pictures were shared all over social media, and no doubt the Kremlin was watching. On top of all of this, we have Hunter Biden's involvement in business dealings with Ukraine and the certain corruption involved there as a result. But there's one more thing to consider. On March 24th of last year, that's 2021, President Zelensky signed Decree Number 117-2021, which essentially made known their intentions of taking Crimea back from Russia. The document reads, quote, to approve the strategy for deoccupation and reintegration of the temporarily occupied territory of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea and the city of Sevastopol. With American approval, remember Biden stated that Crimea is Ukraine, Zelensky moved forward with his plans to take Crimea back from the hands of Russia. There is also another layer to this that is worth considering. The top three producers of oil in the world are Number one, United States. Number two, Saudi Arabia. And number three, Russia. Russian energy, that's oil and natural gas, provides roughly 50% of their government budget and roughly 30% of Russia's total GDP. 
Using this money, Russia has been able to slowly yet haphazardly rebuild from the ashes of the former Soviet empire. 35% of the EU's gas supply comes from Russia, which means that both sides stand to lose quite a bit if their pipelines and cash flow get disrupted. This is where it gets interesting with Ukraine. After the Soviet collapse, Ukraine would only allow Russia to continue using their pipelines on Ukrainian soil at the tune of several billion dollars a year. Circa 2005, 80% of Russian exports crossed through Ukraine. If you're wondering why Russia is looking to build more pipelines, this is one significant reason. They already have the Nord Stream pipeline, the South Stream, and the 2,552-mile-long Yamal Europe, which trucks through Belarus. Crimea is strategic for Russian energy aspirations in the adjacent Black Sea, which is reported to, which is reported to contain more than 2 trillion cubic meters worth of natural gas resources. This on top of Ukraine's discovery a decade or so ago of an incredible amount of untapped resources underneath their own soil, of which they did not have the technology or wealth to tap. Once they brought in Western technology, companies like Shell, Ukraine rose to the top and after Russia became Europe's second so-called petrol state. The current debacle, in my view, has much to do with the westernization of Ukraine through oil and gas, as well as the inevitable absorption into the EU and NATO, something Putin does not want for his own national interests. The current contest in Ukraine is unfortunate and sad. It's unfortunate because, as we'll see in our final segment, the real war behind the war has everything to do with humanism and the ugly fruit that it produces. The religious wars of the religiously humanist have been disastrous for the past 200 years. From the killing fields of Cambodia to the Great Leap Forward in China, humanism has done more damage and killed more people than all of the so-called Christian religious wars of all history combined. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is sad because civilians are dying and our Christian brothers and sisters are fleeing for their lives. Over 600,000 refugees have fled to Poland, leaving their jobs and belongings behind. I can't even imagine the scenario. I can only weep for them and pray for them. In fact, I weep for both sides as the Ukrainian ambassador to the UN read a text exchange on a phone they found which belonged to a now-deceased Russian soldier. Apparently, he was texting his mother and she asked if he was still doing training exercises. She also wanted to send a parcel to him, and the soldier told his mother that he's actually in Ukraine and he is afraid because they are targeting civilians and bombing cities. He laments that the Ukrainians are falling under their tanks and calling them fascists. Apparently, his last text stated, this is so hard. Propaganda? I don't know. But even Putin's military seems to have an aversion to this needless war of aggression. But there are some silver linings here. Ukraine is fighting back. Russian missteps, for example, where is their air force, have led them to sending in ground troops prematurely. And Ukraine's air force has shown up and been much more formidable than Putin probably anticipated. Kyiv was supposed to fall pretty quickly, but it has not. In fact, last week, when the Russian convoy was on its way to the capital, 200 plus vehicles were destroyed, a huge tactical error on Russia's part. The Jerusalem Post here just a few days ago said that fuel and logistics problems frustrate Russian advance. 
Russia's army is about as coherent and organized as an off-script Joe Biden sentence. Running out of gas? Lack of food? If Russia is the second most powerful military in the world, they most certainly rank first in the stupid unprepared tactics category. Ukraine has the support of the West, at least in terms of morale, and I anticipate potential involvement with NATO forces in the near future. Now, I'm not saying that I support Putin 100%, nor am I saying that I support the U.S.-backed Ukraine 100%. Both sides have their issues, no doubt. I do believe that there are good men in the Ukrainian government and that they are not, quote, anti-Russian Nazis, end quote. There are men that I trust who have an ear to the ground there, and they confirm this for me. I do bemoan the invasion, and I do think Russia is a problem, albeit an incompetent problem. They should not have invaded Ukraine, and Ukraine has a right to call for help. However, the downside of countries being westernized, be it Southern Africa or Eastern Europe, is that the Western mind has become rather desultory and sordid. Our lust for abortion continues in America and in Europe. We are exporting human autonomy on a grand scale, and this is calamitous. We're not working with Christian principles here in the West, as we'll see in our last segment. Modernism arose out of the Enlightenment and Reformational eras, and now we're in the relativistic, postmodern, authoritarian world. When you reject Christian principles, you get totalitarianism, and it is ugly. Finally, I pray the situation in Ukraine is resolved as soon as possible. I, I certainly do denounce the Russian invasion along with their own people, And while I have tried to outline the complicated story from both sides, I do believe that the Ukrainians have a right to do what's in their best interest in defending themselves, and I pray that they come out victorious. This includes enlisting others to defend themselves. By the way, the Russian military looks as decrepit as it did 30 years ago. If there's one thing I know, the Ukrainians are resilient and unflappable. There are so many Christians in Ukraine, and we pray for strength and resilience for them during this terrible time. And now for our three headlines. First up, President Biden has nominated Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to become the 116th Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Reading from WhiteHouse.gov, quote, Since Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement, President Biden has conducted a rigorous process to identify his replacement. President Biden sought a candidate with exceptional credentials, unimpeachable character, and unwavering dedication to the rule of law. And the president sought an individual who is committed to equal justice under the law and who understands the profound impact that the Supreme Court's decisions have on the lives of the American people. That is why the president nominated Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to serve as the next justice on the Supreme Court. Judge Jackson is one of our nation's brightest legal minds and has an unusual breadth of experience in our legal system, giving her the perspective to be an exceptional justice, end quote. The website goes on to talk about Judge Brown. Uh, She was born in D.C., but raised in Miami, Florida. Her parents attended uh, segregated primary schools. They attended historically black colleges and universities. Uh, Both of her parents were public school teachers. Her father, Judge Jackson, attended law school while Katanji was in preschool. Apparently, she watched her father make his way through law school and grew to love it from an early age. Uh, Her educational background, she graduated magnum cum laude from Harvard University and cum laude from Harvard Law School. As 
uh, far as her career goes, she was one of President Biden's first judicial nominations and nominees last year. She was appointed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in 2021. And going back further to the Obama administration, she was appointed to the U.S. District Court in 2012. So as far as certain accolades go, once she's confirmed by the Senate and installed as the next justice, she will be the first, this is interesting, the first former federal public defender to serve on the Supreme Court. Very interesting. As well as the first black woman. There has been some uh, controversy surrounding her prior appointment to the D.C. Circuit last year. Um, NPR reported that Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, asked her an interesting question. Uh, he asked, do you think that the U.S. criminal justice system is systematically racist or is infected with systematic racism and bias? Interesting question. And she replied, quote, those are not terms that I use in the law when we look at issues of race, end quote. She went on to say that those, quote, aren't words that I've ever used in a court of law to make claims based under the Constitution or the uh, applicable statutes, end quote. Now, I suspect that she will be approved and it will go rather smoothly, unlike the Brett Kavanaugh circus we saw a few years ago. Some organizations are concerned about her views on so-called climate change, while others aren't too worried about her past rulings. Uh, CNN here is reporting that retired federal judge J. Michael Luddig considered a luminary in conservative circles, enthusiastically endorsed Jackson, describing her as a candidate who is, quote, eminently qualified to serve on the Supreme Court of the United States, end quote. How will she rule? Well, uh, I would expect her to rule right in line with her uh, predecessor, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, as he retires. Despite being told that the court is nonpartisan, we all know how these things go, and uh, we shall see when the time comes. All right, next up, because this is more of a Christian worldview-type program, I thought it fitting to talk about the Legacy Standard Bible, because I've been using it for several months, and I have to say it is by far my favorite English translation of the Bible. Now, you may find this to be curious given that the project was something taken on by scholars of the dispensational persuasion. Rest assured that despite my annoyance with that particular noxious theology, I do believe that the translators did an incredible job with it. Uh, from the website, LSB, uh, lsbible.org, quote, the LSB advances the aim of the NASB. It brings our it brings out textual connections through consistent translations of words, highlights literary artistry like alliteration, and tightens grammatical structure. Um, when I was uh, in college, I used the NASB, but quickly switched to the ESV because I was in the young, restless, and reformed camp. And when preaching through different series, I would switch here and there to test the waters. And while I liked the modern English version, that's an updated KJV, I didn't love it. And the same goes for the NASB. I feel like it's just too clunky of a translation. And people have asked what I like about the LSB, and, and it's really simple. It has, this is my summary, it has the word-for-word -word consistency of the NASB while also having the fluidity and readability of the ESV. Now, there are a lot of videos you can watch on the translation, but I'll give you three quick, quick examples of what I like. First is the usage of Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And that's perhaps the greatest, more noticeable features. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Hebrew Shema reads, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And no other English translation does this. Uh, second reason I like it, and this is an example from the book of Judges, the theme of the entire book has to do with a problem of covenant people doing what is right in their own eyes, which happens to be the very last verse of the entire book. And there's a verse in Judges 14.7 that is sometimes mistranslated. And the KJV, KJV says it this way, And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. The NIV says this, Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. The LSB, along with the ESV, says it this way, So he went down and spoke to the woman, and she was right in the eyes of Samson. The LSB does this sort of thing on several different places, but the structure of the Hebrew is meant to clue you in on the theme of the book, and I appreciate this from the translators who have noted this. The contextual clues are often hidden in certain translations, and the LSB brings them out. Third example, and this will be the last one, and this is something that frustrates me uh, about the ESV, but in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul speaks of Satan as being the, quote, God of this age or world. Now, the LSB and the NIV get the Greek word aeon correct. It's age. The ESV, RSV, KJV, and even the 1599 Geneva Bible translate it as world. Now, the Greek word is not cosmos, and I think Paul is intimating for us what the old age, the age where darkness had been running its course, has come to an end now because of Jesus, and he is the God of this new covenant age. So even if we go with world, that, you know, that can mean one of like 10 things in the New Testament, but I think having aeon emphasize the way it is, emphasizes the time aspect and not the spatial aspect. Anyhow, you can go to the website and compare some of the verses, but I have to say the translation team, along with the 316 publishing crew who is producing these beautiful Bibles, um, they've done an outstanding job, and I'm happy to be using it and preaching from it. So check it out. You can read it online and get a feel at lsbible.org. All right, next up, most of my listeners will have by now learned about Dr. Gary North's passing on February 24th, 2022. Gary was 80 years old, and I have to say the man has left an impressive legacy behind. A father, husband, grandfather, and friend, Dr. North's influence in the past 50 years has literally been worldwide. North's prolificacy stands next to no one. The sheer output of material since completing his Ph.D. at the University of California, Riverside in 1972 is almost incredulous. A stalwart of Reformed theology and an economics giant, Dr. North has written dozens and dozens upon dozens and dozens of books, articles, and journals covering everything from theology to philosophy and sociology to free markets. He even helped Dr. Ron Paul in the development of homeschool materials with what is known as the Ron Paul Curriculum. North's contribution to theology is exceptional. Alongside his father-in-law, R.J. Rushdini, and the esteemed theonomist and presuppositionalist Greg Bonson, as well as David Sheldon, North and this crew inundated the theological landscape with commentaries, books, lectures, debates, and speeches promoting what is commonly known as Christian Reconstructionism. A lot of, in a lot of ways, North's main focus was economics and history, but one would be foolish to suggest that he was unable to delve into other topics. In fact, North's wide range of expertise on Marxism, monetary policy, biblical theology, and ethics pretty much covers just about everything anyone could ever imagine. 
which is all to say that he is with our Lord, he is in the presence and fullness of joy, and we rejoice in that. It is a loss for us, but a tremendous gain for heaven. I thought I would share a few of my favorite books of his, most of which are sitting right behind me. Probably my most favorite was the first book of his that I ever read, Millennialism and Social Theory. Uh, Unconditional Surrender is also a must-read. Theonomy and Informed Response is also crucial, especially given the theological debates that went on in the 80s and early 90s. And I also really enjoyed his book, When Justice is Aborted, which is a biblical look at abortion and nonviolent resistance. Perhaps his most impressive work is his economic commentary series on the whole Bible. Uh, The short little book, 75 Bible Questions, is um, also a phenomenal resource. If you're looking to find Dr. North's books, Remember that you can grab a free PDF of them at GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. You can also listen to several books, including some of my own, for free at ReconstructionistRadio.com. One final thought. Perhaps my favorite phrase from Dr. North is this, you can't beat something with nothing. This has been in large part a life motto of mine. But there's another phrase that I find to be absolutely incredible, and in large part, it was his working paradigm. It's a phrase he turned in one of his books that became a talking point for me personally, and it was this, everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. That's Christianity right there. Dr. North will certainly be missed, and I am thankful to God for him and his life. So we pray for the family as they mourn his loss, and I hope and pray that many of you who are listening will make the effort to read the plethora of materials that Dr. North has given to us. Now let's get to our final segment, Theonomy or Autonomy. War. What is it good for? Edwin Starr said, absolutely nothing. The United States spends billions upon billions of dollars for what some might call any moment war readiness, and that bill far surpasses the next several countries combined. But that's just money. What about the bloodiness of war itself? In the June 2014 issue of the American Journal of Public Health, we are told that 90% of deaths in war are civilians. On average, 10 civilians die for every one combatant. And here's another interesting stat. Since the end of World War II, the U.S. has launched 201 out of the 248 armed conflicts, and those stats are a few years old. War, we might say, is big business. But what does the Bible say about it? First, there are principles of war that God gave Israel, and that can be found in Deuteronomy 20, as well as chapters 21, 23, 24, 25, and as well as Numbers chapter 1. I go into this a bit more in my book, The Politics of Humanism, but for now, just note that the chapter here in Deuteronomy 20 has preparation for war and principles for war. And what are those terms and conditions? To start, God was to be trusted above all. Fear of God always takes precedence. Second, the Israelite army consisted of males 20 years and older. Older men who had prior experience were generals and commanders, but this wasn't a standing army. It was men who cared about their covenant status with Yahweh. Furthermore, War itself was only to be done on God's terms. Men were to be consecrated before the Lord. The numbers did not matter because God fights. And when the war is over, the spoil belongs to God because he is the one who gives the victory. 
Practically speaking, this was voluntary conscription, a militia of sorts. Because the Bible is future-oriented and because the Dominion Mandate takes top priority, men who just started a business and or a family were not to go to war. The goal was to have troops who were not distracted. Family and Dominion take priority. A man who was afraid was not to go to war either, but this is all the preparation for war. What happens when war comes your way? In Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 15, we find that Israel is outside of the land facing battle. They had been attacked, and a defensive war is only what was permitted. They offer peace to their attackers first. If the opposing group accepts the terms of peace, then that particular nation or people group becomes a subordinate vassal state to Israel. Meddling in the affairs of other countries is off limits. If individuals desire to aid, then so be it, but no one is coerced. As I wrote in my book, the Christian view of war is simple. Peace if possible, dominion mandate at all cost. We must honor God the whole way through. We must not live for war. So the vassal state accepts the terms of being a subordinate state. Fine, but what if they don't? God tells Israel that their next step is to cut off supplies and wait them out. We do not jump to bloodshed. If they will not voluntarily surrender, perhaps they can be forced to surrender. God wants to preserve life, not destroy it willy-nilly. If they do not surrender, then war is permitted. Evil was to be destroyed, and perhaps uh, after defeating the army, the king would surrender, or perhaps the king would die in battle, in which case the people may surrender. But one thing that is not permitted is total warfare, the destruction of anything and everything. God gave specific harem judgments in history, which included the burning of cities to the ground, but that is no longer the case in the New Covenant era. Those were special judgments of special revelation. In short, no standing armies, only voluntary militias, defensive wars only, no wars of aggression. This is why Russia is wrong here. Peace was and is always the primary objective. Total warfare is off limits, which is why the fruit trees were not permitted by God to be cut down and destroyed during the siege and subsequent battle. At every turn, God's law protects man's future and man's productivity, even in times of war. I know what some of the critics are thinking. Yeah, Jason, but this isn't Israel in the Old Covenant. This is America. You're absolutely right. America has forsaken the Lord Jesus Christ, and America has not covenanted with him. We have not publicly confessed our sins and covenanted together with social confession, which, by the way, doesn't make us a friend of God, but an enemy of God. Our autonomy is loud and clear. We cannot be so delusional to think that we are going to escape the judgment of God for the butchering of children and the radical humanism that has penetrated our social order. Our vacuous political structure, while having some good things to say, is still permitting the slaughter of infants in the womb. Our colleges are overrun by socialist-leaning fools, and our pulpits are still weak and torpid. I absolutely realize that what I just outlined doesn't quite work right now. And I absolutely realize that what I just outlined is an ideal situation, which assumes a vast constituency that is regenerated. But we are under the judgment of God. Should NATO intervene? Yes, we have an emergency situation. They should, they should do so, lest even more Ukrainian civilians perish. The United States should at least show some force and get Putin to back away. That part is obvious. But do we also have a megalithic federal beast problem? Yep. 
The complication of applying biblical principles to an unbiblical nation-state runs deep and includes things like immigration and monetary policy. Speaking of monetary policy, just wait until they cut you out, dear Christian, of the social order like they're doing with Russians' civilians. It's hard to get off the teat of the state when they literally control everything. But at least we have direction and guidance. After all, we're supposed to, as Christians, teach America how to follow the law word of God, which presupposes that we know the law of God and can tell them how to do it. The first and foremost need of the hour for us here in America as we watch this unfold is one, a crying out to the Lord on behalf of our nation, a Daniel 9 moment, the church repenting sort of thing. Two, a public confession of sin involving everyone. And three, a revisiting of what God actually says in his word and then trusting him from there. Now I know. (laughs) I get it. We're so far gone, it seems. But we're really not. You see, repentance is always an option. And I pray that we would repent. I pray that Russia would go back home and repent. I pray that Ukrainians would go back to their homes and join in national repentance. And I pray that America would repent as well. Quite literally, our future depends on it. That's it for this week. Thanks for watching and listening to Cross and Crown Radio. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining me on today's episode. We're happy to have you here again. If you'd like to contribute to the ongoing cost of production, we would absolutely love to have you partner with us in this work. Could be a one-time donation, maybe $10 a month. Um, Either way, we want to invite you to visit crosscrownchurch.com slash give. You can find other resources there. And we also wanted to let you know that uh, we will have some other audio-only content coming around once in a while, so be on the lookout for that. Thanks again. The Lord bless you and keep you.